So just a quick reminder that next week's episode is our last one in season two, which is blowing my mind that it, it just flew by so fast. We're going to take the summer to actually enjoy the sun and recharge and do all of those good things. So go back and check out the season. It'll still be here for you. All of our amazing guests will still be here for you to catch up on while we are on summer break. But for right now, I am jumping in with the incredible Dr. L. Carol Scott. Let's go. Ever found yourself teetering on the edge of throwing in the towel? You know, asking yourself questions like, is this supposed to be this hard? Or is it even possible to succeed at this entrepreneur thing? (sighs) I completely get it because I built my successful businesses while juggling major health issues for my children and myself, debt piling up to my eyeballs and so much more. Want to know how the hell I succeeded and how you can too? Tune in to find out. Here we go. Hey there, entrepreneur. Welcome to today's show. I am joined by Dr. L. Carol Scott, who is a trauma-informed developmental psychologist who shows you how your success now is determined by how life unfolded during your first 2,500 days. So from birth to seven years old, her book, just be yourself, your guide to improving any relationship provides the self-aware success strategies or SAS, which I love like how you use that word, for ensuring greater success now. She's a TEDx speaker. She's a nationally respected thought leader in early care and education. And I am so excited to have this conversation. So welcome to the show. Michelle, thank you so much for having me. Of course, of course. I just, oh, I love this topic. Um, so let's kick it off. You know, tell people about your your journey. I know you have kind of kind of a pivotal moment in there that, that puts you on this journey. So tell people all about it. Um, You know, it's interesting. I've been reflecting lately that there were two pivots. There was the little pivot and then there was the big deal pivot. Um, When I was a sophomore in college, I was 18 years old and I was thinking I was going to be a shrink. I was majoring in psychology and I took an elective class in child development and my whole world changed in a semester because the topic of children's development, human development in the early years literally grabbed me by like some kind of spiritual shirt front and said, come along, sister. (laughs) And so that was the little pivot, the pivot that took me into studying something I never dreamed of studying. And then later, after the bachelor's, the master's in early childhood education, working on my PhD, I was a few years into my doctoral work in developmental and child psychology, which is very fancy way to say child development. I woke up after my 30th birthday party, which was something of a you know, pretty dramatic blowout party and thought to myself, like it was my waking thought, Michelle, you know, thank you again, spirit, I guess. How come I'm an emerging professional? I'm working on a doctorate. I'm starting to be visible in a career and I am still doing this. I am still using street drugs. I am still drinking to the point of almost blackout drunkenness. Is there something wrong with this? And it really was literally the first time I'd asked the question. It had never occurred to me before that there might be something wrong with that behavior. And so I went to therapy and asked the question in therapy, is there something wrong with this? And it turned out that 
the alcohol use and the drug use wasn't the big deal I thought it was underneath that deal was the big deal of trauma in my childhood, sexual abuse, emotional abuse, um, the divorce of my parents, a bunch of what we call adverse childhood experiences. And these are 10 researched impacts on young children that dramatically wire their brains differently for, from the rest of us and um, really have a long-term impact on life and lifestyle. Wow. Wow. Can you just, can you just tell folks what those are, if you can think of them off the top of your head? Cause I was looking at the list and counting which ones I was in, in on. <laughs> yeah, I can usually name them all it's three, um, five types of abuse basically, and five types of family dysfunction. So, uh, emotional abuse, physical abuse, sexual abuse, um, something in there, two other kinds of abuse that are falling out of my head but are related to those three. Then the five family dysfunctions are things like the, the loss of a parent to divorce or death, um, the, the, a parent or a caregiver who is either in prison in the criminal justice system or is actively criminal in your household selling drugs or doing something criminal, um, the abuse of one caregiver by another, physical abuse that you witness. Um, let's see, what else? Um, yeah, they're, they're kind of enough. falling out of my head. It's easier That's to have, enough. The, have, the, <laughs> have the script in front of me and I didn't. That's okay. That's all right. I think that's enough category okay. for us, right? You get the idea. <laughs> um, you know, I just think it's, I think it's amazing that so many of the things that you talked about are just kind of, you know, we'll just forget about it. Don't even think about it as if they're not making an impact that impacts people there for their entire lives, right? Yes. Yes. A lot of these are, are issues that families prefer to sweep under the carpet right. um, and not talk about. And yet these, this list of 10, which is on my website actually as a graphic image under ACEs, these 10 experiences were discovered through research on long-term health effects. So we are more likely, the more of these ACEs we have in our past, we're more likely to have long-term debilitating illnesses like diabetes stress-related illnesses, cancer even. And so it was a Kaiser research study looking at um, health that found that there are these, what we call now social determinants of health. Huh. Wow. I mean, it makes sense, right? From, it does. from all the stuff that's coming out nowadays, right? Like I'm a big believer in like dis-ease, right? Louise Hay and all that good stuff, right? The, the things right. that happen in your life, they manifest in your body. Um, so bring us back. So you kind of un unearth this about yourself, that really that is the deeper big deal. You know, what happens after that? Um, I spent seven years in incest recovery therapy, individual therapy, group therapy with other incest survivors. And then I graduated myself from therapy. I thought I was really whole. And what I have learned is <laughs> I found a baseline of wholeness yeah. and I've been building on it ever since. I continue to find kind of self-directed ways to heal um, through spirituality, through greater self-awareness, through the creation of my own work. I've done the work that I offer to other people. And then finally, just within the last couple of years, I've discovered the need to really rewire my neural network. And so I'm using applied neurology tools now to help um, unpack some of the trauma impacts to my nervous system, the ways that I Oh, kind of reactively, just like a default. 
yeah. Yeah. behave in a way that I can't stop myself from behaving because my nervous system is directing me to do that. Right. Which and is, so that's, that's in my latest, that's not my latest health approach. That's amazing because so many, I, I love the fact that there's more research and more talk about the nervous system and polyvagal responses and just exactly. all sorts of things like that. Can you just tell people, give it, give it like a mini background of, you know, how the nervous system really can do what you just said it does? Sure. And it really starts with the fact, Michelle, that we've come into life without a brain. We come in with a skull full of loose neurons, 100 billion neurons that need to be wired together to create the nervous system, to create the brain. And so those ACEs and other experiences, whatever happens in our environment, wires those neurons together. And when there is trauma or when there is high stress, even just just living in the, the grind of poverty day by day by day can be an impact that wires the brain badly. We wind up with a nervous system where the part of the brain that thinks goes offline pretty easily when the what we call the reptilian brain or the amygdala in scientific terms tells us that something is wrong. So you can think of your amygdala, this is how I come to think of it from my work on polyvagal, um, my rewiring my vagus nerve system. Yeah. The, the, the amygdala is like the little reptile, the little lizard on your back deck whose head darts from side to side and up and down, constantly looking all around going, am I safe? Am I safe? Am I safe? Am I safe? That's the amygdala's job. And if your vagus nerve system and other parts of your brain get wired by traumatic experiences or stress, then the answer that the rest of your system gives is, no, you're really not safe at all. You need to do something right now to be safe. And so we generate all these outputs of behavior to keep ourselves safe because the inputs are giving us disinformation. Right. You know, our senses are telling us things that aren't true about the environment. And the amygdala says, oh, fear, fear, danger, danger. And so we start developing behaviors like drinking, drug use, acting out in relationships, um, having really acting out sexually. I mean, there's so many ways, just being defensive, reactively defensive is a way to keep yourself safe. Yeah. I mean, and if you're somebody who's not in this world, like, I mean, I know a lot too much probably about the polyvagal response. Cause I've been in situations where my nervous system has been so taxed where it's dropped my heart rate. Um, it's, it's played dead essentially. Right. 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 <laughs> you know, so like you and I probably know a lot more, but I think what you're describing is could be extremely overwhelming for people. Right. So I know you've yeah. developed like a really great system to kind of bring people back from some of this. Right. Correct. So, you know, what happens usually, you know, you've probably heard of fight, flight, or freeze. And there's a new addition called fawn, the people-pleasing response. So if we do one of those things reactively out of patterning, out of nervous system wiring, then it's important to take a look at our behavior, get self-aware about what yes. we're doing, and then develop more successful strategies. So what I've done is identify seven success strategies that we move through in childhood and they are sort of natural strategies for getting along in the world and re-enliven them, bring them back online to replace the patterns of behavior that are not functional for us. So and it starts with trust. Newborn babies come into the world with no other strategy than to trust that they'll be taken care of because they can't take care of themselves. Human babies are the most dependent species there is. Right. And so they just trust that somebody will feed them and you know change their diapers and 
take care of their basic physical needs for survival. And they either learn over their about first six months, they, they wire their brain with the answer to that question. Can I trust that I'll be taken care of? Yes or no. Wow. Is there somebody who has my back? Yes or no. Am I safe? Yes or no. And so if there is trauma, if there is, you know, misinformation coming in from the environment, then the answer is no, there's nobody to take care of me. I need to watch out for myself. Then we go from the capacity to trust, the strategy of trust, to the strategy of independence. And if you've ever met a toddler, you understand why I called it that. Yes, yes. <laughs> Toddlers are all about showing us who they are as an independent, unique being. I think this, it's not what you think, by the way. I feel this, not what you want me to feel, by the way. And I want all these things that you don't want me to have. Right. So what you think, what you feel, and what you want gets added to what you need as the sort of picture of who you are. And each one of us is a unique package when we have trust and independence as strategies. And then we stop paying so much attention to our own navel. We start being, stop being so self-focused. And we start paying attention to the world by the time we're about three and the world is full of magic for a three-year-old because they don't have any logic for at least a few more years. And so everything is just an, an incredible possibility. They believe in literally anything is possible. And so I call that strategy faith. You have faith in anything you can think of. You can have faith in your big dreams. You have, you know, when you're three, you have faith that the moon follows the car. I mean, they're pretty creative. Yeah, they are, yeah. But it's, so it's also the source of your creativity, your inspiration, your playfulness. Children are very imaginative at that age and they make yeah. stuff up all the time. And if what they hear from the adults around them is you're a liar and it's not okay for you to believe in big dreams, that's silly, don't be dumb, then they lose that strategy too. They lose their faith. Yeah. That right there is the heart of who you are as a human being, your yeah. trust, your independence, and your faith. Then you start figuring out how to use those strategies as a foundation to get along with people. And so at four, it's negotiation. And again, if you've ever met a four-year-old, <laughs> yes, it is. this is no surprise because four-year-olds are really all about getting what they want. Um, by, and they're, they're very creative. They're like little, little labor negotiators in yes. the preschool world. They are looking to figure out what are you willing to do and how can I make my ask fit inside your container? Right. right. Parents have limits. Teachers have limits. We've got, you know, agreements with the group. And if they can get what they want by hitting inside your bubble, they're so happy. And so they're about negotiating for what they want and they do it with each other too. Yeah. And we can come out of that fourth year with a pretty good strategy for negotiating to get what we want, or we can learn that it's the adult's highway, you know, my way. Yeah. And that's all we get. Then Getting along in the bigger group as they kind of get out of the one-on-one, -on -one, you yes. want this, I want that kind of dynamic. Then we come to the strategy that I call vision for five-year-olds. They're the strategic planners, whereas four-year-olds are the labor negotiators at preschool, labor negotiators at preschool. Five-year-olds are the strategic planners of the preschool universe. And they're all about having a goal and getting everybody to cooperate in planning some way to do that goal. Right. I used to watch the five-year-olds on my preschool playground spend 30 minutes of outdoor playtime planning how to play Star Wars. <laughs> and then not this was back in the 80s, the first three movies. Yeah. Yeah. And, and they literally would never play it. They would just plan how they were going to play it. And that's a very common dynamic among five-year-olds. Yeah. So vision and cooperation in a group leads them to the six and seven-year-old success strategies that I call compromise and acceptance. 
because we have to get beyond negotiation in a one-on-one -on -one win win and figure out how to get along in a group where there are lots of complex people with lots of complex desires and thoughts and ideas and opinions and it means giving up some things we want yeah. being able to say yeah i want those three things but they're much less important than these three other things that i want so i'm going to see how the three things that are strongest for me fit in this bigger group dynamic and then finally we have to get to the point where we can accept that it doesn't always go the way we want as a matter of fact it doesn't always go well right and you can be a really good kid who follows all the rules does your homework loves your parents is respectful and your mom can get cancer and die you can get in trouble at school over something you didn't do bad things happen to good people and good things happen for bad people and we have to learn to live with that and know that you know life's a roller coaster and sometimes it's going to be great and sometimes it's not going to be great but that isn't about me yeah and keep on with our mission and our purpose so there they are trust independence faith negotiation vision compromise and acceptance the success strategies yeah so i think number one thank you because i think that was very insightful and i think anyone who doesn't think all of those relate to entrepreneurship is crazy <laughs> because like, as you were going through them yes. as you were going yes. through them i was like and we can use this and we can use that and this would be handy if more people knew this like in the back of my head i'm thinking this isn't just for kids growing up like so can you talk about the you know the bridge into into success as an adult with this stuff Absolutely. Yeah. And I think, you know, what I want people to know now is that they were naturally occurring. They came up for you as a natural phenomenon when you were young and you either kind of solidified them and got them in your pocket as tool set or you didn't. And now you need to use them as intentional strategies for your success. You can reclaim them on purpose now and use them. So, yeah, it can you affect a team's performance in a workplace? by thinking about how well you trust each other and for what do you trust each other? Absolutely. Can you gain more respect for each other as uh, professionals by looking at your independent, unique self, getting respect for who a person is as they are, rather than trying to remake them into yourself? We all do an awful lot of projecting, and I think it's rampant in the workplace that we project onto other people that we think that they're going to be just like us. Right. and in oh my goodness in the political sphere as well so yeah. government work included with corporate yeah. work and nonprofit work in this we can find success in our marital relationships in our sibling relationships in literally any relationship by using these strategies intentionally with self-awareness how do i do it now that's the way i begin in my coaching how are you doing this now because you are doing them and they're either working well for you or they're not. So let's take a look at the patterns in your life, how they function, and then get more aware about how to think of them like tools. You yeah. know, I can trust someone differently than I trust them now if I pay attention to how I'm trusting them now. Yes. And I think that you hit the nail on the head right there is you have to examine the current state yes. before you. And I think, I think people aren't I'm always amazed. I'm always amazed. Let me back up there. I'm always amazed at how many people are not even stopping to evaluate their current state, right? Like if you ask somebody like, well, what makes you happy? Or, you know, what do you want to do? And they're like, what? Like, I'm just, I'm just going through. And I'm like, no, but you have control. Like people forget they have the autonomy, right? So mm -hmm. how do you help people just kind of turn that light bulb on? I have uh, a lot of tools I use in coaching. I call them development do-overs. 
So let's let's start with trust because it's so core to who we are. You know, a lot of people we have misinformation about these tools also. So we think of trust as something that's a you turn it on or you turn it off. It's a right. light switch. Right. I trust you. I don't trust you. But that's not how it works. No. Because remember, infants learn about trust based on what they need. So it begins with what do you need? And boy, that's a hard question for a lot of people to answer. Yes. What do you need from other people? Not, you know, you need a new car, you need a new house, but you need respect. You need someone who listens to you without interrupting. And that's a really good definition of respect. Yes. You need uh, validation. You need people to see you for who you are and not try to hold up a paper cutout of somebody else in front of you and turn you into that. Right. You need things from people and you are getting your needs met somewhere or you're beating your head on a brick wall bloody trying to get them met somewhere. So let's take a look at that. Who do you know in your life right now who you can trust to see you for who you are? Who do you know in your life right now who you can trust to be there for you when you are off your head, when you need to rant crazy for five minutes about something that makes no sense, who will just listen to you, not judge you, not try to fix you, just hear you out and then say, who that sounds hard, yeah, <laughs> right? That, who can you trust for it. those kind of fundamental <laughs> needs that you have? And you don't know who you're trusting for them until you know what they are. So getting them down on paper, these are the things I need from people. And then looking at who's good at that and who's really not. Yes, I often yes. tell the story of, my mother was never good at positive praise, telling you good job in any way. My mother was really good at telling you what you did wrong. She was great at that. So if I ever need, needed correction or criticism, like on something that I had written, she was my go-to. But if I wanted somebody to pat me on the head and say, oh, you're so good at that, she was not the one to go to. And it took me decades to stop going to that dry well when I was thirsty for praise. And to look around me and notice, my gosh, my life is full of people who pat me on the head and say, good job. How come I don't feel satisfied by that? Right, right. Because it's it must go back to that childhood need, right? It comes full circle yeah. to that need to those people that are directly connected to that initial search for trust, right? Yeah. And if I'm still trying to be seen for who I am by my parents who are dead for, you know, 20 years instead of noticing that I am seen for who I am by my spouse, by my manager, by my direct reports, by my neighbor, by my minister, you know, who is it who's good at this? Let's take a look around. Yeah. Yeah. And then, like you said, putting the value where the value should be yes. um, in, in reality. But if you don't even look, then you won't even have the chance to celebrate the people that could be in that value circle. Right. 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 Yeah. We don't get to make choices about who to turn to, who to look to for the support that we need. And so sometimes we wind up trying to give it all to ourselves yeah. or trying to put all our eggs in some other person's basket, trying to get it all from our spouse. Yeah. Yeah. That's Usually funny. a mistake. Right? Yeah. Yeah. And I think you learned that. I mean, it's easier, right? It's easier to look for those external fixes, right? Or external, yeah. you know, um, escapism, or whatever, external, everything is easier, yeah. right? Than really going internally and saying, no, this is actually and acknowledging sometimes to your earlier point, acknowledging what you need, right? Because especially, I don't know, as women, I'm taught, I'm been heard a couple of times that that's selfish. So, uh -huh. you know. well, and just think of the word that we apply to people who are trying to get their needs met, they're needy. 
Yeah, and it's exactly. not a pretty thing. We don't think that's a good thing to be needy. Right. So a lot of this looking at ourselves, having self-awareness about the way we operate is it feels threatening. It feels scary to say, I'm not really okay. Yeah. Yeah. Because we're supposed to be okay. We're grownups. Exactly. Which, which none of us are okay completely all the time. So, I mean, cue yeah. pandemic, <laughs> you know, and all the health, exactly. mental health crisis that's happening right now. We're not okay, folks. And that, but I think that's okay. And the more people that will say I'm not okay, the more people who, who will admit I have needs and they're not being met, the more we could trust one another. Right. 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 And you know, there's this big movement now for authenticity, be authentic, be vulnerable. <laughs> Dr. Brene Brown is encouraging everybody to be authentic and vulnerable. And it all sounds great until you have to sit down and do it with somebody. Exactly. And yeah. then I don't want to, <laughs> I don't want to, I don't want to tell you about how I use drugs and alcohol and what a nut job I was before I went to therapy. That's embarrassing. Well, no, it is. And I came by it pretty honestly. Yeah. And it's just, it's just fine to say, I was there and now I'm here. I recovered. Yeah. Because I think the come more on, people say along. it. Yeah, exactly. And the more people say it, the more we realize that everyone has a thing too. Right? right. Like, and I don't, and I don't say that to minimize people's experiences either or the trauma or anything like that. But I think at least, and I've said this a couple of times that when I give talks on resilience and I kind of tell different stories, I inevitably have at least one person come up after that says, oh, I thought it was just me that was going through that, or I thought it was just me who felt that way, or, you know, but the silence, you know, is, or, you know, Brene Brown, the shame of it all yeah. and staying silent with it, it can't, it can't live when you shine a light on it. So yeah. when the more people, again, who talk about it, like you, the more people who are sitting there, even if some one person hears you, who gets, who is given permission to actually examine their trust again. Let's normalize the fact that most of us came through childhood without these strategies. And it doesn't mean that we have to be mad at our parents or no. think that they were no. terrible parents. Their brains got wired for them against their permission as well. Yes. You know, if, if 80% 80 of your brain is wired by the time you're three years old. So all those neurons in your brain, they all get hooked up by the time you're three and you didn't have any participation. You were just a passive recipient of the wiring everybody's like that, your parents, your siblings, the crazy neighbor who you can't understand their behavior. It's like all of us have that experience. So let's normalize it. Let's talk about it. Yeah. So please tell me that some of that is fixable because again, I have two children and every time I hear stuff like this, I want to like throw up a little bit. So can yeah. you talk to me about that, please? Yeah. And really it's all fixable. And my main motto in my work is it is never too late to begin mm. the rewiring nice. process. The work that I do is about repatterning behavior. And I think of it as a way to reverse engineer back into the wiring. So the more I change my behavior, that I can wire my brain differently than it was wired. And also sometimes trauma is so severe and comes so early that we need something more specific to work on the brain itself, on the nervous system. And so now we have wonderful creations, you know, like, EFT tapping, yeah, um, EMDR work, love that um, applied neurology that actually interacts with the nervous system directly and changes the wiring at the ground level, if you will. And so I work really well. I, I actually just recently did a workshop with an applied neurology coach and she did her applied neurology work. I did my development do-overs work and it just fit together beautifully. Yeah. And that way people, I, 
I'm so, I'm so glad that you're saying that it's rewirable. Number one, as a parent, but number two, as just a human being, having gone through a lot of the things on that list, um, from a trauma perspective, it, it tells me that number one, I'm not defined by it. You know, I think oftentimes we can become defined by certain things and certain traumas in our lives. It's easy to do, right? It takes over everything, Right. but it, it, what you're saying is gives people permission to not be, you know, defined by just that. Correct. I mean, it, it's very easy to say I'm a victim and get petted for being a victim. Right. And I actually, one of my sort of big awakening moments in therapy was the day my therapist said to me, do you want to be a victim all your life? Yes. And I was furious at her for even asking me the question because of course not, but it was pretty easy to just stay there and go, oh, poor me. Yes. But I needed to be a survivor And now I think of myself as somebody who's become a thriver. I've moved even beyond surviving because surviving sounds like my nose is just out of the water and I'm still maybe in danger of drowning. But being a thriver means, you know, I can get in the pool and swim around if I want to, or I can lie on the beach. Yeah. You remember that you have a choice. Yes. (laughs) Which one to do, right? (laughs) Yes. And that's really when we get to those final success strategies of compromise and acceptance, they're all about recognizing choice. And taking action on choice. I get to choose my behavior based on my values, not just what I want and don't want in the moment or the emotion that's passing. I get to choose this is how I want to live my life. I want to be remembered for this legacy as a person. Yeah. And make conscious choices. Yeah. And who, I mean, that's just such a beautiful thing when you think about it. And I just, there's some people that I see in the world and I mean, no offense to them, but I just want to shake them and be like, Oh, do you see that you have a choice? Do you see this? But they're not, you know, not there yet. I haven't been there yet on many of an occasion. Right. So I just, so talk to us about kind of the, the situations that you've seen when people have had that light bulb go off of, Oh, I, I am at the choice part of it. Or I am like at that kind of that precipice of, I can choose. You know, I, I just was thinking of another one of my own, and then I'll tell you about somebody that I worked with. Um, when I was, oh, I think just about 40, my best friend in all the world of 10 years got breast cancer and very quickly passed away. And I went to her memorial service and listened to people stand up and talk about her. And over and over again, they spoke about how courageous she was, how brave, what a really person full of courage she was in all ways in her life. And I realized people are not going to say this kind of stuff about me if I die next year. I am not living a life that brings people to their feet to speak about me in glowing terms. And that was not okay with me. So there's a gift sometimes in loss. There's a gift always in loss, but sometimes it's an opportunity to look at yourself and what's missing in your own life. So self-awareness can come from a lot of interesting directions. Um, When I was a new CEO for a nonprofit, it was the first time I'd, I'd been a director of a nonprofit before and had worked in other kinds of leadership roles. But this was, I was a leader for a state level nonprofit and we interacted at the national level and it was, it was a pretty big deal job. It was kind of like my capstone career position before I started doing this. And my first opportunity to provide a performance appraisal for one of my other C-suite folks, um, I had to say to her, look, 
here's the feedback I can give you about your performance in your job. And I can also tell you that there's some other stuff here that's not my job. And I would really encourage you to go talk to a, a counseling or therapeutic professional of some kind. You have some interpersonal, personal, psychological work to do. And that's not for us to yeah. do here. No. And it was the first time in her life that somebody had confronted her about her behavior that wasn't just doing the books and handling the ops. Yeah. And you know what? Over the 10 years we worked together, she did that work. Nice. And she continued to do it after I left the job. She's still in the position that, that um, she was in when I did that performance appraisal for her. And she's become such a different person because she finally decided it isn't enough just to be able to do check the boxes of my job. Right. I'm a person interacting with other people in this office and yep. there's something in there. Yeah. yeah. And you're a person living an active life that can evolve and change and, you know, good, bad, whatever comes your way. You always have a, I mean, you always have a choice, either your reaction to it or what to do in it. Right. Yes. So yes. I mean, that's, that's lovely. Number one, I'm surprised that you were good for you for saying that. And then <laughs> in a review, because that's a slippery slope, but at the same yes. time, like if it had to have been said, you know, if it hadn't been said rather, who knows where she would have been at that point. Right. Cause that stuff does bleed in and it then does. you get a bad performance review. Yes. What happened? Yeah, because it's hard to tell the difference sometimes between personality work and performance work. Right. Right. Because they're blended. Right. And really there shouldn't be a difference on a lot of levels. Right. Cause they're all yeah, exactly. Right. <laughs> um, well, I mean, are there any other kind of last tidbits you've given us so much incredible information, last tidbits that you think our audience really should need or start with or whatever you feel like we should know. Um, I think the most important thing to remember is that it's never too late nice. and that none of us came through those first seven years unscathed. No family is perfect. Right. All families have strengths and all families have areas where they could perform better. And you don't have to be stuck with what you grew up with. Right. You get to remake yourself. Yeah. Anytime you make the choice. I think yeah. that's the most important message to carry away. Yeah. And sometimes that's one of the bravest things that you can do too, is to remake yourself in your own image, not yes. necessarily everybody else's image of you. Right. Yes which is beautiful. And I hope everybody takes that piece of advice and runs with it from this episode. Um, can you tell people, I know you have an, a wonderful freebie to be giving away that they need to take advantage of and also where to find you. Sure. Um, I'd like to offer everybody listening um, a little book at 28 pages, cover to cover, a little PDF I can send you. Send me an email. My email address will be in the show notes and use Michelle's name or the name of the podcast in the subject line. So I know where you heard about it and I'll send you back become your sassy self, which summarizes the seven success strategies, how you develop them, and some of the kind of tips and clues about how you can tell whether you've got them operating it at this point. And I'd love to also just invite everybody to attend one of my sassy Sunday salons. It's a free 90 minute coaching once a month on the second Sunday, and you can get uh, registration on my website at lcarolscott.com. Wonderful. And I have the PDF folks. And I have to say it was, it's quite impressive. It's beautiful and it's easy to digest. And I think you should go to the show notes right now and take advantage of the offer that she's given. So, you know what, Dr. Scott, thank you so much for this. This has been a wonderful conversation. Thanks, Michelle. It was my pleasure. Conversations like this always 
fascinate me because, you know, there's just, we don't realize how much of the stuff that we experienced growing up, you know, really does dictate a lot of what we do now as adults. And I think the minute that you become aware of things like these seven social and emotional assets for success, you know, once you really start shining the light on those things, that's key because then you can, you know, change it. You can be more conscious in your decision-making and more intentional as you go through life. So I just think that, you know, Dr. L. Carol Scott has a lot of wonderful information. She's got wonderful resources too. So be sure to check them out and take advantage of her ebook was fantastic. So take advantage of that as well. And on next week's episode, I am welcoming a fantastic human being. So I'm welcoming Stacy Tushel to the show and Stacy's expertise. We're going to be talking about tips for successfully scaling your business. You're going to hear all about her journey, which was, is fantastic, but this is a fantastic, amazing episode to end our second season because she's, she's just brilliant. She's brilliant. She brings so much to the table that you don't want to miss. And if you love this podcast, please don't forget to subscribe, download, follow, rate, and review. And you know, tell a friend because who couldn't use a little more resilience in their life, right? See you later.